Hello and welcome. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. And it is so good to be here with you today. Uh, we are really excited to see what God is going to do in, in our time together. Um, you know, we've had the opportunity to kind of see how everybody's been engaging with these videos these past couple weeks. And it's been really interesting because there's some of you, maybe even that are watching right now, that have watched at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning or 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. You, friends, are our creatures of habit. So thank you, and we're glad you're watching at those times. But there's a lot of us, too, that are watching at other times throughout the week. And uh, as I was thinking about that and just thinking about what we're doing here and this time that we're in, um, it's really beautiful to me um, what God is doing, that you can watch a video like this at any time of the day, any time of the week. And our prayer is that you feel connected, not just to a ministry, but more so to a body of people, a, a group of people who are deeply passionate about serving Jesus and uh, who are working through this um, COVID-19 thing together. Um, so as you're tuning in today, I want you to know that that's what you're a part of and welcome. We're glad to have you with us today. Um, you know, one of the things I really felt strongly that I needed to share with you in this time is, is a simple phrase that's you're not alone. Um, I want you to know that you're not alone. I don't know about you, but for me, there's been so many times throughout these past couple of weeks where I've just felt isolated. I felt disconnected. I'm an extrovert, so this is, can be really, really hard for me um, to not have somebody to give a high five to or a hug. Um, but it's just hard, right? And with the news coming nonstop, it's a difficult place to be. Um, so my heart, our heart as a church for you is that you don't feel like you're alone. There's ways that you can connect to us and to what God is doing here and to the people of Christ community. We've already mentioned the ways to connect on our Facebook page and also our website. But I want to suggest one more thing. Um, what if you picked up your phone and maybe gave somebody a phone call or shot somebody a text, um, maybe somebody that you connect with usually here at church or um, somebody that's in your small group and just maybe just ask them, hey, how are you doing? How are you holding up? And just checking in with the people around us. Friends, um, that is one way that we can uh, realize and, and get it through our heads that we're not in this alone, um, that we care for one another and we're walking through this together. So I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you with that today. As we go into our time of worship um, in light of this season, um, there's something that's been pounding in my heart over these past couple of days and really something that God's been calling me to and that's just grounding myself. Grounding myself mainly in his goodness and who he is. In a time that seems like a turbulent storm and rocky waters, Jesus Christ can be the anchor for our souls. And I came across this passage in Psalm 136 that we're going to read together here in a moment. And it's, it's a very repetitive passage that keeps saying these words, his love endures forever. His love endures forever. And what we're going to do in just a moment, I'm going to read that and you're going to respond by saying every time, his love endures forever. And as you say those words over and over again, my prayer, our prayer is that those words would get deep into your soul and that they would ground you as you move forward in this day and that certainly as you move forward in our time together. So we're, let's start this time, let's start this reading before we go into worship. I just maybe like a couple seconds here of just grounding ourselves in, in, in the goodness of God and centering ourselves on Jesus Christ. Let's just do that in a moment of silence here right now.
And if you would respond to these verses by saying, his love endures forever. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens, his love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters, his love endures forever. Who made the great lights, his love endures forever. The sun to govern the day, his love endures forever. The moon and stars to govern the night, his love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, his love endures forever. Father, we thank you right now that we can proclaim with all hope and all uh, honesty and complete firmness that your love never fails. Your love endures forever. And it's out of that heart posture, God, that we come to worship you now. Would you receive our meditation? Would you receive our worship and our praise as we declare your love endures forever? Friends, let's worship together.
to be in your presence wherever we are. I pray right here, right now, that we would feel your nearness. Come and have your way, God. We open our, our hearts, our minds, our thoughts to you. Come and speak now, God. We give you the glory and we enjoy your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, Christ community, so glad you are joining us. These are unprecedented days that we find ourselves in. Um, but let me just say, I am so proud of you all. I'm so proud of the way our church is responding in this challenging season, the way you are reaching out and caring for each other, the ways that you are being generous toward this church and others around you. Way to go. Seriously, way to go. I am so thankful to be a part of this amazing church family. Um, let me mention something I'm, I'm really excited about. Tonight at 6.30, we're going to be doing a Facebook Live prayer event led by me and a few of our prayer team. We will be socially distancing, I promise. Um, but what it, what, what's so cool is that we have several other churches, actually 12 other churches in our city doing the same thing in their, with their church at the exact same time. So we are going to be part of a much larger thing God is doing. So I encourage you to go on our church's Facebook page tonight at 630 and join with us in prayer. It's going to be, it's going to be awesome. So speaking of prayer, hey, let me, let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. And thank you for how your word speaks to us in the midst of the place we're at and the, the crisis we're in, Lord. And I want to ask you, God, to take these words, to use these words and apply them to each of our hearts, God. That you would apply these words to the situations we're in, the things we're wrestling with, the people we know, the things we're struggling with, whatever it is, Lord, we... We, we offer this to you. I offer my, this, my heart to you. I offer this message to you. And I pray that you would speak to each one of us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're in week three of a four-week teaching series entitled Love This Book. In, in, in the midst of this very difficult season that we find ourselves in, we need the Word of God. We need the Word of God to provide strength and encouragement. But what prompted this series was this realization that more and more Christians, rather than loving the Bible, are actually disengaging from it because of their struggle with some of the content in the Bible. Maybe this is you, maybe you have friends that are struggling with things or whatever, but some content in the Bible. What do we do with the violence in the Old Testament? What, what do we do with these laws in the Old Testament that seem to condone slavery or polygamy? How do we reconcile scientific discoveries with what the Bible seems to be teaching? See, for many people, when they're confronted with these kinds of questions by a college professor or, or by a book uh, by Richard Dawkins or whatever, they come to a, a crisis of faith. And often the only legitimate option they see is to abandon the Bible or to abandon their faith entirely, which is tragic 
And it breaks my heart because it doesn't have to be this way. And in the midst of spending quite a bit of time exploring these things, I realized that the foundational issue is not the Bible per se. The foundational issue is how we interpret the Bible. As we have been talking about in the series, Jesus loved the Bible, but he didn't love it when people misinterpreted the Bible. For instance, in Mark chapter 12, this group of religious leaders approached Jesus trying to use the law of Moses to argue against a future resurrection. So they give Jesus this hypothetical scenario where a man dies, and according to the law of Moses, his wife then marries his brother, and he also dies. So then she marries the next brother and the next brother. This happens seven times, and then she dies probably from exhaustion. Um, so these religious leaders ask Jesus, so when she goes to heaven, whose wife will she be? Look at Jesus' response. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Now, this is amazing. These are not lightweights. I mean, Jesus is talking to these religious leaders who know their Bible backwards and forwards. And he says to them, you are in error because you don't know the scriptures. You're badly mistaken. He's not saying they don't know what the Bible says. He's saying they don't know what the Bible means. They have misinterpreted it. You see, Jesus isn't going for this modern day notion that you can just interpret the Bible however you want to. Jesus takes this idea of interpretation very seriously, and we need to as well. We don't need to be afraid when we hear some intellectual questioning something in the Bible Often their questions are legitimate questions to wrestle with, which is exactly what Jesus urges us to do. We need to do the work of interpretation. So when we look at how Jesus interpreted the Bible, we realize that there are a couple of key interpretive questions that we need to ask when we approach a difficult passage in the Bible. So here's the first question. What is the original author's intended meaning? What is the original author's intended meaning? As we talked about last week, Jesus viewed the Bible as being both a divine and a human book. The Bible was not dropped down to us from heaven containing God's dictated words. No, God breathed through human beings. And in doing so, God didn't override their unique personality and culture and worldview and sense of humor. He breathed his word through these people in their unique context. And what this means is that whenever we are approaching a passage of scripture, especially a difficult passage of scripture, we need to begin by trying to understand what the original author is trying, is intending to communicate to their audience, because we are not the original audience. The Bible was not written to us. It was written for us, but we are not the original audience. So we need to try and understand what the original audience would have understood this passage to be saying. So for instance, when Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Does he mean that literally? 
Or when Paul tells the Philippians, watch out for those dogs. Is he warning us against pit bulls? You know, no, he, he's talking about certain dangerous people. We do the Bible a major injustice when we don't try to first understand the author's original intent. But it is not always easy to get there. I mean, let me state something obvious, but, but, but we often forget. The Bible is a really, really, really old book. We're talking two to 3,000 years or more old. The differences between our Western culture and the culture of Moses or Joshua or Jeremiah or even the Apostle Paul could not be more significant. I mean, I, I personally, I have a really hard time understanding Shakespeare. I'm told that he's, he was really funny. I don't get any of his jokes. I, I, I don't understand the political climate he was writing in or the cliches that he used. And that was only 400 years ago. The Bible is four to five times that old. And because of that, we need to be very careful to not project onto this ancient text our cultural assumptions and worldview. For example, in the writings of the ancient Near East, it was very common to exaggerate numbers, especially as it related to conquests and victories. In the Bible, we at times will see a statement like in 1 Samuel 15, where we're told that the Amalekites were completely wiped out by Saul. But then, a few chapters later, in 1 Samuel chapter 27, David is still fighting some Amalekites. I mean, is that a contradiction? No. It's a reflection of how that culture regularly used exaggerated descriptions when talking about conquest. Now, in, in our worldview, in our culture, to exaggerate numbers when giving some historical record would be lying. It would be deceptive. But it wasn't in their culture. It was normal. It was expected. So when we read certain numbers in the Old Testament that seem that kind of seem too large, you know, they may actually be too large, intentionally so. Does that make the Bible less trustworthy or less inspired? Absolutely not. It simply reflects the truth that the Bible was written in a particular culture with particular values and worldviews that are often different than ours. So when we don't do the interpretive work of trying to understand the mindset and the context and the culture of the original author, we can easily find ourselves coming to conclusions about the Bible that are not true or not accurate. This is especially relevant in the area of science and faith. You know, many people believe that science and the Bible are incompatible. But the reality is there are many top-notch scientists today who have a vibrant faith in God. We're talking Nobel Prize winners, professors at Cambridge, MIT, Princeton. And not only that, some of the most well-known scientists in history have been devout believers in God and the Bible, like Isaac Newton and Copernicus, Galileo. Now, now, Galileo's story is really relevant for us today because Galileo used scientific principles to discover that the sun does not revolve around the earth, but that instead the earth revolves around the sun. That was radical in that day. I mean, we, we all know that to be, this to be true today. But when Galileo came out with his discovery, the church, the church forced him to renounce his scientific conclusions or be kicked out of the church. Why? Because they understood the Bible to teach that the earth was, that the earth was the center of the universe. 
And they quoted passages in the Bible that talked about how the sun rises and the sun sets, and so the earth must be the center. We now know that they had misinterpreted scripture. They had insisted on a literal understanding of the sun rising and setting when the Bible didn't have to be interpreted in that way. And I believe we're in danger of a similar thing happening today as it relates to how we view Genesis chapter 1. Now, I know this is a bit controversial and that you may not agree with some of the things I'm going to say, and that's okay. That's totally okay. But I want us to at least think about and wrestle with some things as it relates to how we interpret this passage. Because even if you're not wrestling with this passage, there, you, may be, you know people around you. There are people around you that, that have wrestled with this passage. So a commonly accepted view within the body of Christ is the view that the Bible teaches that God created the universe in six literal 24-hour days and that the earth is only 6,000 years old. I'm guessing that Many people in our church hold to this view, which is totally fine. But is this the only legitimate way to interpret Genesis 1? As we've been talking about in this message, the foundational interpretive question to ask is this. What is the original author's intended meaning? And many scholars who love Jesus point out that there is, a, there is quite a bit of evidence that points to the idea that Genesis 1 is a poem there are several numeric patterns in the Hebrew text that point towards this. There is rhythm to the text. There are repetitions in the text. So if this is indeed a poem, that means that the author didn't intend for it to be taken literally. That's not how poetry works. Now, that doesn't mean that Genesis 1 is not true. It just means that the author is using poetry to communicate the truth that God is the creator of all things. Okay, now, even if we try to take this passage as a literal description of creation events, we still run into the issue of what the author originally meant with the language that he used. So, for instance, when we read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, this is what we read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, pretty familiar with that verse, right? So, what immediately comes to your mind when you hear the word earth? Right, we, all of us, we, we see in our minds planet Earth. We see in our minds this globe, right? But what did the original author mean by Earth? What was he envisioning when he used the word Earth? When he used the Hebrew words, the Hebrew word Eretz, when he used that word, he was thinking about the land that he was standing on. This land that he was standing on, and the land as far as he could see. That's what this Hebrew word means. It means land. It can be translated earth or land. And when he looked up, when he looked up, what did he see? Well, what he saw was what looked like a dome of blue, right? Blue sky, a dome of blue. Well, what else was blue in the world of the original author? Water. Water. So this would explain verse 6, Genesis 1, verse 6. Look at this. And God said, let there be a vault that word is translated various things, space, let it be a firmament, a dome, expanse. Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. See, what is this describing? This is how a Near Eastern ancient person thought of the sky. It was an ocean of water. 
that was separated from us by a barrier of some sort. And when it rained, the gates of heaven or the windows of heaven would open because that's where rain came from in, the, in their worldview. And this is why we have passages in the Bible that talk about the windows of heaven opening and rain coming down. They didn't understand how clouds form through evaporation and how our atmosphere works. They were simply describing reality in their own understanding. See, it is not fair or helpful to try and project onto this ancient text our modern and sophisticated understanding of the atmosphere and planets and the theory of relativity and how light functions and all of that. That was not the author's point. It was never intended to be a scientific textbook for the year 2020. And we shouldn't try and make it into that. See, I believe the point of Genesis 1 is not to tell us details about how God created all things or when he created all things. I mean, we can certainly have opinions about those things. But the literary point of Genesis 1 is to tell us that God created all things out of his goodness and love. So for us to insist that the Bible provides scientifically accurate information in the year 2020 is making the Bible do something it was never intended to do. And I think is creating this unnecessary barrier in people's minds between science and faith, like they have to choose one or the other. You know, making people think that they must abandon their faith if they find credible scientific evidence that doesn't support a young age of the earth, for instance. Let me share another example just from, the, from, the, from Jesus, the teaching of Jesus. So Jesus once said in, in John 12, 24, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now we know from biology that seeds don't die. Technically speaking, they don't die. So was Jesus wrong? Should he have said, hey, you guys won't understand this right now, but unless a seed goes into dormancy, it remains only a single seed. Again, that was not Jesus' point. He was using a common illustration and common understanding of seeds in that culture to communicate spiritual truth to that culture. He was not giving a 21st century science lecture, you know, a botany lecture. He was not doing that. Jesus using this analogy doesn't in any way undermine the truth of Scripture. It just clarifies for us what the purpose of the passage is. Now, if, if you're interested in exploring this relationship between the Bible and science, or maybe you have a friend that's kind of wondering about these things, man, I highly recommend the book Friend of Science, Friend of Faith by Dr. Greg Davidson, who's a professor of geology at the University of Mississippi. You may not agree with everything he says, but he does a great job articulating how recent scientific evidence regarding evolution or the age of the earth or things like that don't have to be a barrier for someone who believes the Bible. To me, this interpretive question we're talking about here is so freeing. It is so freeing. I love Genesis 1, but not because it's a scientific textbook telling me the details about the what and how of creation. I love Genesis 1 because of the questions it answers, questions that science can't begin to touch, questions like, why am I here? 
What is my purpose? See, Genesis 1 resounds with the truth that I have a creator who loves me and that I am created in his image. I have a purpose in him. So friends, we don't have to be afraid of scientific discoveries or cynical about new scientific evidence or embarrassed by the Bible in these matters. None of those things change the foundational truth that Genesis 1 so eloquently and powerfully communicates. Okay, well, that leads to a second interpretive question that Jesus would encourage us to ask when approaching difficult passages. Here's the question. Where does this passage fit into the larger story that God is writing? As we saw two weeks ago, Jesus loved the Bible, and, and he viewed the entire Bible as being a unified story that ultimately points to him. So when we look at difficult passages in the Bible, like certain Old Testament laws that make no sense to us, we need to realize those things come much earlier in the, sto- in the story. These laws were given to an ancient people, the nation of Israel, who, unlike our context, were living in a barbaric violent period of time where there were no official laws about behavior, about morality, about valuing people, or even about basic sanitation. I mean, they lived in a context where sexual immorality and incest and bestiality, child sacrifice were very common. So as I talked about two weeks ago, in the larger story of God's purposes to bless the whole world, that that was his heart, to bless the whole world. But in the larger story, he chose the nation of Israel, not because they were better than anyone else. He chose them to be his holy people and to enter into a covenant with him set apart for his purposes. And so the laws that he gave them were actually a huge movement towards This idea of holiness, of not being sucked into the barbarism and the idolatrous and immoral lives of the people around them. But many of these laws make no sense to us in our cultural context. For instance, one of the laws in Leviticus forbids tattoos. Why was that forbidden? Well, in the Canaanite culture, tattoos and intentional skin scarring were often used in pagan worship rituals. So it would make sense for for God to forbid that at that period of time. But that was not intended to be a universal law for all time. It had a specific purpose at that time, like every other one of God's Old Testament laws had a purpose. Now, for some of them, That purpose makes no sense to us. We read it, we think, we don't understand it. It makes no sense to us about clothing, things like that. But for many others, the purpose seems seems clear to us. But just because we can't understand the purpose of that law in our cultural reality doesn't mean that we must conclude that God is some archaic, out-of-touch deity. Now, this, this, this idea of knowing where we are in the story, it really helps us as we wrestle with this issue of violence in the Old Testament. This is something that I continue, have strugg- I've struggled with a lot in the past. I continue to kind of struggle with, I've read a ton about this, but these passages like in Joshua 6 where, where the Israelites just wipe out the entire city of Jericho, including women and, and children. See, in, in our Western worldview, this sounds like genocide. So how do we interpret passages like these? There are no simple answers Again, I've done a ton of reading, and there are a lot of different opinions about this. I'd be happy to dialogue. If you're interested in in having a dialogue about it, just reach out to me. I'd be happy to dialogue. But one thing that has really helped me 
in this question is to remember where these things occur in the story of God's activity. As I mentioned a moment ago, God's ultimate heart is to restore all things, to bring his good kingdom to every nation on earth. Every nation, that's his heart. But he had to start somewhere, so he chose the nation of Israel. And in the midst of their bar the barbaric, violent culture of which they were a part, he begins pointing them toward holiness. But the reality is the influences of some of these other nations around them could significantly hinder God's plan moving forward. So for a very short period of time, God chose to use a culturally appropriate and necessary means of establishing his people in the promised land, a means that involved violence in order to move his, his overall purposes forward. This was not a long-term vision. It was for a particular situation in the life of the nation of Israel, but not a way of life God intended to be continued. Yes, wars were a part of life at the time of Israel, and unfortunately, they're a part of life today. But Christianity does not embrace any concept of jihad or holy war. The Crusades were a horrible example of people misinterpreting God's word and his purposes. See, the reality is the violent episodes in the Old Testament describe a limited season in which God was trying to establish a holy people in a very violent and unholy world. Now, even in the midst of these, these episodes, we, we see God giving opportunity for people to turn to him. Like the story of the prostitute Rahab in Jericho who was, who was delivered. And she actually became a part of the bloodline of Jesus, which is amazing. And why did God have, in that story, why did God have the people of Israel march around the city seven times, one time each day for a period of a week? I mean, could it be that he was giving the city of Jericho opportunity to surrender? Even though these are extremely difficult passages to understand, all these violent passages are difficult to understand, I, I want to encourage us to remember where they fit in the larger story and to ultimately see them through the lens of the cross. The lens of the cross where Jesus, God's son, Though innocent, voluntarily experienced the bloody, brutal violence and injustice of humanity, choosing to be nailed to a cross in order to provide a way for sinful humans to be whole, to be able to live differently, to live lives of love and holiness that reflect God's ultimate heart and the values of his kingdom. See, Jesus paid the price for us to be the holy, loving people of God, a people who now joyfully live under his lordship and choose to live in God's kingdom of love and express that to other people. See, that's where we are in the story. And so let, let's, let's always keep that in mind, in our minds and hearts as we wrestle with difficult passages in the Old Testament. The, 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 those passages don't give us a complete picture of what God is like. They don't. They don't give us a complete picture of what God is like. We see a complete picture of what God is like in the person of Jesus. In the person of Jesus. I heard an illustration recently that I'm, I'm adapting, but imagine one day I'm, I'm coming out of the Rio 
when I'm actually able to go eat at a restaurant again. Um, and I see my sweet, gentle wife, Raylene, across the street at Lincoln Park. And I, and I watch as this homeless-looking man approaches her, and they kind of begin talking with each other, right? And then she immediately kicks him and hits him over the head with her purse. What do I conclude from that? Well, I could conclude that my wife has just become this very mean, nasty person and that she can no longer be trusted with our children. But what if I looked at that episode through another lens? What if I said, you know, I have been married to this woman for 30 years. I know what she's like. And even though it looked to me like she was being very rude and violent, there may be a part of this story that I don't understand. Okay, so then when I, when I run out to her, I discover that this man had been reaching for a knife in his coat. And he intended to harm my wife and others around her. See, when I look at the violence in the Old Testament, I can draw all sorts of horrible conclusions about what God is like. Or I can say, I know what God is like by looking at the cross, by looking at Jesus. And so even though I don't understand some of the violence I see in the Old Testament, I'm going to assume the best about him, that his heart and his purposes are good. Even when I, in my limited perspective, don't understand the specifics of why something happened. See, the cross shows us that God is good and loving and holy. Even in the midst of passages we don't understand. Even in the midst of a pandemic that is triggering all sorts of fear and anxiety in us. Let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus because we know what he is like. Even in the midst of the storm that's all around us, we know he is good and he is loving, that his heart is for us and that nothing can separate us from his love. So before I pray for us, I want to do something that I did last week, and that is to give you an opportunity. You don't have to do this, but give you an opportunity to pause right now in this service and to engage in a specific Bible passage that is related to our topic today and as we enter into Holy Week in a couple weeks as well. So whether you're watching this by yourself or maybe you're watching this with your family or maybe in a group virtually or whatever, this passage is from the Old Testament, and it is a prophetic passage of Jesus' purpose in coming as our suffering servant, as a suffering servant, as Savior for us. So this passage is found in Isaiah 53. It was written several centuries before Jesus ever came on the scene. But as you read this passage, it's, it's really describing the future, it's describing for that person what would be a future event of Jesus' death on the cross. And it's describing it in a very vivid way. Showing some of the violence of the cross. And so I want you to think about it. I want you to think about this, the, this passage as you read it. Think about it in light of the question of violence in the Old Testament and, and violence in our world. And, and here, here are a couple questions to process. What does this passage say about what Jesus endured, about what Jesus endured for us? Why he did that? And how does that impact your life today? Okay, so I'm going to pray for us right now. And then feel free to hit pause 
You can spend a few minutes in that passage if you want. And then when you're ready to continue in worship, hit play. And our worship team will lead us in an opportunity to praise this Jesus who has given us so much. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word in all of its complexity and mystery, its beauty, its, its power. And we thank you for your word. And God, thank you for teaching us through Jesus of the importance of interpretation, properly interpreting the Bible, especially these difficult passages that concern people or people criticize or whatever. Help us just learn from Jesus in how to interpret this precious word, to understand the original author's intent and to see the passage in light of the Oh, the larger story that you are writing. And God, we are so thankful that Jesus is at the center of that story. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you show us what God is like. You show us, you reveal what God is like, and we're thankful for that. We are thankful for the cross. We are thankful for the love that you poured out upon us on the cross, enabling us to have a relationship with you. And I want to just pray, there may be some of you here and you're watching and you're thinking, man, I don't, I don't even know about Jesus. I don't know how to have a relationship with him. I, I want to just invite you right now. You can, you can invite Jesus into your heart right now. Let me lead you in a prayer to do that. And he will come live in you filling you with his peace and his presence. So just pray along with me in the silence of your heart. Dear God, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I've, I've gone my own way and that that sin has separated me from you, but I don't want to be separated from you. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me and you, you Jesus, you died in my place as a payment for my sin. Thank you for doing that. And I choose right now to place my trust in you. I ask you to come live in me, Jesus. Forgive me of all of my sins and transform me from the inside out through the power of your love. So God, thank you. I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. Help them grow in this relationship with you. And I pray for all of us to grow in this relationship with you and our love for this book. So set us free right now just to focus on you wherever we're at watching this, to focus on you and to worship you because you are worthy of that. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.
Sing it. You are. 
This is such a perfect time and season to sing these next lyrics out to the Lord. That even we don't feel it when we don't see it, that he's still working for our good and his glory. So Holy Father, wherever we are with you, God, whether we're in a season of doubt, of stress, anxiety, whatever it is, God, will you come and meet us where we are now, Holy Father? For some of us, will you come and give us the boldness and the faith and the confidence in you to sing these words out, God, to sing them till they grab a hold of our hearts, God. Singing in faith, and even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, even when. Stop. 
we just worship you. We thank you, God, that those words are true, God, that your blessing is over every single one of us, that you are with us, that you are for us. And even in the midst of the uncertain times that we find ourselves in, Father, that we can wake up in the morning and our first thought doesn't have to be, I wonder what's gonna happen today. I wonder what I won't be able to do today or who I won't be able to see today, but, but our first thought would be, God's favor is upon me. God's presence is with me. And Father, we just receive that presence. We receive that favor right now. And we thank you for it. We thank you for it, God. Before I do, there's just two things I want to share with you. Um, first of all, um, just a really honest and practical thing is that the ministry here at Christ Community, including this video, it just, it just wouldn't be able to happen without your generosity and your partnership and you coming alongside of us financially. Um, so we encourage you, if you're able to, uh, to continue being faithful in your giving. Um, there's an opportunity to do that online. You can uh, click uh, the link at the bottom of this video. Um, you can send that in a text, and you can also mail it in. That would be a great option, too, if you're not able to do either one of those other things technologically. Um, and also, we want you to know that we're here with you, that we're, that we're praying for you. So if you have a specific need, I just want to encourage you um, to use our, our Facebook page, our CCC Family Connect page, for that purpose. If there's something on your heart uh, regarding what's going on in our world right now or something um, specifically that is hitting you, we want to agree with you in prayer. Another option to do that is on our um, cccgreeley.org page as well. Um, you can click the uh, prayer request page on that and that will get our prayer request out to, uh, to many people as well so we can join together in prayer. Um, so friends, I just want to encourage you today um, as we end our time together, would you receive this blessing from the Lord? So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And it's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. God bless you, church.